0: LARP Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show in print and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org slash hour
1: This is an LARV Book Club special episode of the Radio Hour. The Book Club is a perk of membership with LA Review of Books, where members receive four editor-selected titles each year, as well as access to discussions. I'm Irene Yoon, Executive Director, and I'm with Michelle Chahara, Editor-in-Chief. We're joined here by Lydia Kiesling, the author of The Golden State, a 2018 National Book Foundation 535 honoree, and a finalist for the VCU Cavill First Novelist Award. Her second novel, Mobility, was published by Crooked Media Reads in August 2023. Lydia is joining us from Portland, Oregon. Thanks so much for being with us here today.
0: First of all, Lydia, thank you so much for joining us for this book club discussion. We're really excited to have you here and talk about your new book, Mobility. When I was thinking about how to get started here, I, I really wanna ask you about complicity and hope and how you think about those things. But before we get there, I thought I'd start with a kind of more basic process question that I kept having. Mobility is a novel that is about the oil industry, and it's also a kind of building Vermont. it's a novel about Bunny or Elizabeth. And I was wondering if you could tell us which came first for you. Did you decide to write about oil and then Bunny appeared to you? Or did this character kind of come to you and then you came to oil somehow?
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Yes, definitely. Bunny was the person who came to my mind first. So I was starting out, I think, more than anything in the beginning, I wanted to write about the Foreign Service upbringing. I grew up in the Foreign Service. So that's the only place where Bunny's in my You know, that's where we really share a lot of similarities. And so I was thinking about, I was trying to kind of capture that feeling of being a teenager and living somewhere that's unfamiliar to you, having these very sort of mundane, basic, like age-appropriate interests and not, you know, there obviously are many teenagers who are much more kind of advanced and admirable than Bunny, but I wasn't necessarily one of those. uh, (laughs) So I was thinking about someone like that, but someone who's also, you know, having this very like unique and interesting experience and has a lot of, you know, they're the obvious sort of like trappings of privilege that come from being able to travel around the world. But it's it's a very kind of specific kind of privilege. And I mean it more in the sense of just, it's a gift to be able to go and see other places. But, and that's often how that is sort of narrativize those types of upbringings later on like oh yeah such a you know rich rich upbringing like what a privilege to go and see all these places but but i think anyone who's spent time in whether it's like foreign service or military or anything with a very specific sort of mission that is bringing you to other places that comes with a very specific culture there's it's very insular in a lot of ways and the older i get and the more removed i am from those years it is, it's a kind of nostalgia, I guess. And so I was thinking about that as I was entering middle age and sort of wanted to talk about that upbringing. And then, yeah, over time, as I was kind of like, well, I can't just write about this teenager, you know, living in a country that's unfamiliar to her. What else is going on? And I think complicity was always kind of part of it because I don't think anyone who, you know, is kind of paying attention and writing in The time we're in now and looking at the recent past is like there's not like an innocent way to tell any like american story and i do think the novel is very much like a product of the time it was written in which involved a lot of kind of reflection and sort of interrogation of systems and then from there the oil part that came next
0: (laughs) The next thing that I wanted to ask you was about that research process. I kept thinking about this book called Carbon Democracy by Timothy Mitchell, mm-hmm. yeah. which is really about the history of modern democracies and how you can't extricate them from the history of the fossil fuel industry. And in that book, what Nancy talks about is like the radical coal miners' unions that could really hold the global economy hostage because they could stop the trains full of coal they could stop the coal and the pipelines got buried underground and there's all the just kind of investigation in the book of these pipelines and you can't see the oil. And so how you tell stories about it becomes more important. But I was thinking a lot about about those radical coal miners. Then I was also wondering, how did you go about that research process? And then how did you decide when to stop? I mean, it's kind of like this, it's an we're gonna ask you about the hyper object idiot later, but like mm. there's you could just keep researching forever on a topic mm-hmm. like this.
2: Yes. And recently I like saw a book somewhere and I had this whole like struggle with myself because it was a new nonfiction book that involved oil and gas. And I was like reflexively was kind of like, oh, I need to get this. And then I was kind of like, I don't need to get this. (laughs) But then I, and then I, but then I had like on my shoulder, I was like, well, you can't stop learning just because like your stupid book is done. And also like, (laughs) I mean, I think part of the experience of writing a book like that is that, I mean, I think writing any novel, you kind of have to come to terms with like, it's never going to be the thing you had in your mind. It's not necessarily what you set out to do sometimes in ways that are very satisfying and felicitous and others that are kind of devastating and, But I think this book especially sort of had that because I was trying to cram so many big things and I did get seduced by so many kind of big stories and I just ultimately like had to just sort of mangle them into a form that was manageable for me. But the rabbit hole began when I was thinking about sort of the region I was going to be setting this teenager who I was thinking about in. And my family had been posted to Yerevan Armenia, And so... know, there was a way in which like, oh, I could write about someone who lives in Yerevan, Armenia, you know, for a summer or two in high school. But I didn't really, I didn't want to write like autofiction or something that was like really sort of straightforwardly memoiristic. And I had through my other life experiences and grad school knew more about Turkic languages and was reading about the Caucasus region generally. And obviously Azerbaijan and Armenia have been in a decades-long conflict. And so I was reading just sort of widely about the region and the oil part jumped out immediately. And it became clear that the way, you know, the memories that I had of Yerevan of that time period after the collapse of the Soviet Union, this is in 1997 when we lived there, and it was very poor and the infrastructure was, very shredded. There had been like a huge out migration of people from the city. But then hearing about Baku in that same time period was having a completely different experience, which was just huge flood of foreign capital. And in some ways, you know, it was going through the same political transition, but then because everything was completely warped and different because of Caspian oil reserves. And I read a book called The Oil and the Glory by Steve Levine, the journalist who had been with the Wall Street Journal, and he did a very good job sort of laying out all the different players. And so that's when my imagination was really captured and was like, oh, wow, there's so many stories here. And for a while, I was sort of like straightforwardly trying to like fictionalize some of those stories, which then the book does end up in a weird place where there's some people who actually are, who are like very minor characters, but are like based on real figures at the time. But where you're like, they don't actually meet the level of like true public figure, but it must be weird to be them if they were ever to read the book and be like, I think this is like maybe me or like a composite of me. So that part ended up in some weird places, but yeah. So then after that, I was just like reading every book I could. And you mentioned Timothy Mitchell's book, which is like very seminal in the field. Well, and even like saying what the field is is kind of one of the things that's so interesting about oil and gas, because You know, there are all these scholars doing amazing stuff and it's completely like interdisciplinary and very like hybrid because the nature of carbon as like a substance sort of requires that. And I remember also I read the beginning to Andreas Malm's book, Fossil Capital, does like a very good job sort of laying out how fossil fuels have this very like instrumental quality in human history and and economics in a way that I was like, oh, my God, this is so, you know, so everything I read like that was very like, oh, these are all these stories. But then again, it's so easy to get torn in so many different directions about how to tell the story. What is the story? And so then I had to really take it back and be like, well, the person that you initially cared about is this sort of vapid teenager (laughs) who you, you know, empathize with in many ways, but also, you know, want to know what are you what are your plans when you (laughs) what will happen to you as you get older? And what is it like to grow up in the neoliberal era? And then I sort of like had to stuff all those together into one, one book.
0: (laughs) Did you actually hit a point where you, you had to tell yourself to stop reading and researching or was it more organic? Like, Oh, okay. Now I know who she is and what she does next. And I got to read a different set of books.
2: (laughs) I was just kind of doing both the whole time. I did like a big chunk of reading. I mean, definitely like the deepest reading I did was early on when I didn't totally know what I was doing. But then I feel like I'd make a teeny bit of progress toward, okay, this is the world that my book is in. But then I'd be like, well, now I need to read these new books or like watch these new like weird YouTube videos from 1995. <laughs> And so, and then I would write a little more and then, so it was kind of like this creeping inching process, but there's definitely like, I mean, I had just these piles sitting around the house for so long. And then when I finally was, I started to like say goodbye to some of the piles a few weeks ago, like some of them, they never really got read. Like some pieces of them got read. I realized that I just had them around kind of like taunting me like, oh, this is the thing that's going to unlock this like work of fiction is if you fully read these like three giant books that are about stuff that... Flies very far from what you're really thinking about. <laughs> but I do think that, you know, there's like a confidence that you need to falsely or know that you need to like build in yourself to, to take on some of these topics. And so it was
1: like the books were armor, kind of. My impression in reading the book is that I did not feel stuffed or mingled, but I am really curious <laughs> to hear you speak a little bit more about the shape that the book actually did end up taking in the formal. Kind of structure that you provided to it, especially given the this wide scope of research that you were doing and all the reading and thinking about how to tackle such a sticky and vast set of topics. So, you know, on the one hand, you have that opening epigraph from Virgil Brecht that starts a novel, Petroleum Resists the Five Act Form. <laughs> um, you know, so that was so great. And then on the other hand, you have, you know, these more conventional chapter titles like The Picnic, The Holiday, that are also pegged then to specific years and segments of the oil industry and the price of oil in the year, <laughs> uh, which I thought was great. So I was just curious to hear a little bit more about, yeah, how did you end up deciding on the shape and the form that the novel ultimately did take after embarking on this kind of rabbit hole of research?
2: Well, I think so much of writing a novel, at least for me, is you have to follow your interests and compulsions, especially in the beginning. Otherwise, like it won't get written. And because when I've started out both for this novel and my previous novel, there were really like there wasn't so much a story I had in my mind as like a place I wanted to describe or a feeling I wanted to describe or a sort of thorny experience I just kind of like wanted to get into. And those don't necessarily attach to like a clear storyline. So plot is a huge problem for me. But I also know that like writing about those things, you know, those feelings, those experiences, like describing those rooms or places like I don't have another way to do that unless I can like put it in a novel, basically, as far as I know. So I'm like, I start there and then I see what I have. And then there's a lot of like retrofitting that happens. And I think, you know, one struggle in the beginning with knowing that what I wanted to sort of talk about and think about was this teenager in this time period. It's hard to write a whole novel about a teenager that's for adults. And many people do it and they definitely like exist. But I, was having a hard time just conceiving what that would be because what are the stakes and what is the thing that's going to happen? And so I sort of knew like, oh, this only becomes meaningful in a way that I can tell it at least, like if I'm then showing this person later in life. And basically I was, so I was just kind of like writing this, you know, I began with her as a teenager. Then I was like, okay, I'm going to write some moments with her in her mid twenties. Something I was thinking a lot about as I was moving forward in life is like what is the experience of work what do jobs look like for someone of this kind of background what do we expect from work or career and so basically i like ended up with a lot of pieces and then i had to figure out how to put them together and i knew i think i knew about sort of halfway through i was like oh she has to work for an oil company like that's how this <laughs> that's how this like has to happen because that answered both like it gave me something that was manageable for me with that oil story because all of those other stories were so big and they, you know, can become these like massive multi-country historical, very intense. I wasn't in a position to write like cities of salt. So I was like, Well, if she works for an oil company, I can both put in some of what interests me so much about the oil and gas industry, but also I can excise some of the I mentioned earlier, it's like this book is a product of its time thinking about what was it like to be a teenager in like 1998 also leads you to like, what is it like to be an adult now? What happened in the interim? Like what's going on now? And like, you know, I was writing with like a fair amount of disgust, both sort of generalized, but also like some self-loathing, certainly, especially when you look back and like just sort of, I don't know, certain like elements in my own like political education and like journey journey. Such as it is, those were sort of things I wanted to think about. And then giving her this career like was an effective like narrative vehicle for me to explore some of those, maybe in like too literal, too literal a sense. But I don't know. It's just such a like, you know, you mentioned coal workers. like when you talk about oil and gas, it's like it's also made up of like people who are doing that work. And I mean, the true people that I have no like there is no like loathing and disgust I have for are like people who are doing. The much more like close to the close to the ground jobs. Like I'm not gonna tell someone who's spending 28 days in a row like on an oil rig, you're an asshole. But then I was kind of like, but why is that? Like why am I? it feels so much easier to, for a lot of reasons, to be like that work, you know, it has an innate nobility. You know, that's like that work gets the job done. But that also is the work that I am most like removed from myself, you know, in my sort of professional life and experience. Whereas someone like Bunny You know, I've never had her job, but I'm like, if I were ever to get a job in the oil and gas industry, like that's what I would be qualified for. But I have this sort of intrinsic like loathing for it, even though I'm like, I would probably be really good at it. (laughs) (laughs) So there was a lot of that. Yeah, I was just kind of thinking. And so that helped to give structure to the book. And then retroactively, I sort of put those pieces together, always like thinking in those terms, like what is professional life and like achievement look like for this person? What is she working toward?
0: I think that a lot of people in our basic position in life would identify with what you just said about kind of feeling that self-loathing for being complicit in this problem that we can't solve as a society, but also, you know, feeling like this is just not the fault of the people who are on the oil rigs, like the working people generally who we all feel pretty helpless in some of this. So I was getting back to complicity, but I wonder... The novel does such a great job of using people's feelings about where they are in the world to kind of dialogue or monologue sometimes (laughs) about what they're doing. And it brings the reader in so that it never feels like there's no like almost no history getting told from a kind of omniscient narrative position. It's all coming through the feelings of the characters. And some of them have some of that self-loathing about where they're at. Did you interview folks? Did you talk to people? (laughs) Or was it all reading and remembering the places you'd been?
2: I didn't interview anyone other than I talked to someone who had lived and worked in Baku like pretty early on. I talked to them just to be like, what was your impression? This is what I'm getting from what I'm reading from that time period. Tell me what it was like for you. And then I had a reader, once the book was done, or like a draft was done who had grown up in Azerbaijan and provided sort of more insight. But the work part was pretty tricky because I became really kind of obsessed actually with like knowing what the jobs are, sort of the communication jobs and what they look like. But it's really hard. Like you can't go and be like, will you talk to me about your job because I'm going to like low-key like excoriate you in this (laughs) book which now I'm kind of like well maybe it wouldn't even have been bad because someone told me at a reading I did an event in Houston and it was really uncanny someone after a young woman said I just want to know if, who you talk to because I work for Exxon and this like was so similar to my experience and I was like shaken like I was just <laughs> like oh okay well I was also kind of proud of myself cuz I was like well it worked like I had read a lot of LinkedIn, which is actually turns out to be hard because LinkedIn does not want people to use it as like a novel resource. They really want you to be like real and forging meaningful, <laughs> like, verifiable connections. I read a lot of job listings and then I realized I was kind of getting too hung up on that stuff and was like, no, I was a temp at an engineering company that did like hydrology and dams so that when she's a temp before she moves over to the like oil company that I was like, oh, that I just had that job. And so I was kind of like, you've had your own white collar work experiences where you're like not the subject matter expert, like you're the support that's like most office jobs I've ever had. How different can they all be? (laughs) Um, And so I just was kind of like, all right, let me take these things from like LinkedIn and whatever, but also like I can, I can also invent because I realized I was getting a little, I was getting tied up just being like, what was the meeting like? And it's like, no, what is your narrative? What do you need to do to move this novel forward? Like, just write that part
1: and hope that it stands up. This is an LARB Book Club special episode of the Radio Hour. I'm Irene Yoon with Michelle Chahara. We're joined by Lydia Kiesling, the author of Mobility, go back actually to what you were describing earlier too about about the idea of storytelling being on some level both a problem and solution vis-a-vis Bunny's job right where she ends up becoming Kind of a spin doctor of sorts for the oil industry, um, because I found that one of the you know most interesting and troubling things I guess about you know reading the novel, the way that her fascination and facility with language, and you know really wanting to pronounce the words correctly and repeat language, and you know love these words and whatever context she's in. Seems to kind of pave the way for her later participation in rebranding and re-narrativizing the oil industry as energy <laughs> as an adult, and the way that you know storytelling itself, like at that, I think that's the women's seminar that you describe, it becomes like weaponized and, and lampooned in the novel itself. So, I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit more about you know as novelist, as a storyteller of sorts, right, about the distinction that we might want to draw here between good and bad storytelling. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I, the more I think about it, the more I'm kind of like, oh, that's what you're sort of fundamentally or like wrestling with. I was thinking about it sort of, you know, parallel to like all my life as a writer. I'm also just sort of like paying attention to world events. And a lot of what I've thought about in the last few years has been around like narrative on thinking about like liberal and progressive politics and watching it's so fascinating to watch sort of arguments unfold that are so necessary like they have to they don't necessarily need to be a sign of dysfunction they are like necessary conversations and sort of thoughts that have to be wrestled with but many of them like don't have an answer and one of them is thinking about you know sort of how i'd watched people on the left talk about how to talk about climate and energy. And, you know, there's a bunch of different conversations that sort of fall under this umbrella. And one of that is the like climate doomer versus optimist, like pro growth. And I will mangle them if I try to like get into all the, I do mostly just like watching from the sidelines from the, these things. Cause I feel like I don't have the tools necessarily myself to like wade in, but you know, there are people who are very like, no, we like oil and gas, but it's like the worker owns it, you know, or there's a lot of different ways that coming at it. And especially if you look at history and like national sovereignty, when I was, you know, studying like Middle Eastern history, I learned to me like someone who would nationalize the Iranian oil industry is like heroic figure, you know? So there are stories where there are taking control of, you know, energy is something that is like exciting and motivates people. So I was thinking a lot about those kind of stories, but then I also noticed how quickly sort of having like an appreciation and admiration for some of those moments and like sort of respect for like the grandeur and size of the history of oil and gas like it very quickly also just led to a like we can never change anything it led very easily into that and i i found myself sort of filling in those like a lot of the language which she's talking about like there's a recurring motif in the book about do you want to be able to have a baby in a hospital room? Which is also, that's just like a funny thing of my generation. Cause many like women of my demographic were like, no, I don't, I don't <laughs> but like, but I do. And it becomes this motif like, Oh, well having a standard, a certain standard of living that we feel to be good and that everyone should have, it can so easily be tied inextricably from oil and gas. And there are many journalists out there. Someone I really admire is Amy Westervelt, who has the podcast drilled and writes a lot about like how these narratives are so sinister. And one another very common one is like, well, don't you want people in the global South to have opportunities for development and plentiful cheap energy? And that means oil and gas, and they need to be able to self-determine. And she points out like, that's the most cynical co-option of those feelings of like, sort of, oh, the noble struggle and like, yes, like people have to self-determine. And she's like, yes, true. BP is also like very invested in that story. I don't like resolve this in the book at all because I, you know, as I'm writing them from a sort of cynical, like, you know, formal detachment where I'm like, by the way, as the writer, like, I think this is bad. I'm still so susceptible to them. And that was kind of like a struggle throughout the book. And, you know, always was kind of like, somebody's going to like come to your door and be like, how dare you? Like you, this, this is like too forgiving of oil and gas, but yeah, it's also, it's just such a, so complex because it is very wound tied up in a lot of things that we do.
0: Well, and there's only so much that an individual can do. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, That leads very directly into my next question, which is thinking about how overwhelming it is to feel helpless in the face of climate crisis. And at the same time, as you said, we're in a moment where we're all aware that we should be thinking and talking about this. Uh, maybe it's the only thing we should be thinking and talking about. But there's a way that the character, because she is an American teenager when we meet her and then is growing up through life decisions that we all have to make and kind of struggling with them in ways that seem very familiar to, to American readers, at least. But I think probably, you know, any Western reader in the country is that need to be thinking about climate change. How did you think about overwhelm and paralysis for your readers? You've been kind of talking about it already, thinking about it from the writer's perspective, but did you think about it? Did you have thoughts while you were writing the novel about, am I going to overwhelm them here or am I going to lead to more paralysis here?
2: <laughs> I fretted a lot. It's funny. I was taught, you know, I've talked to other novelists, like friends, colleagues who are like, oh, I don't think about anything. Like, you can't write like that, which I think is true. That's like the best way to be. But also, that's not how I am. <laughs> um, and and especially with the, you know, I felt like there was like a sort of ethical conundrum at the heart of the book, which is completely unresolved. And that's fine. I'm just like, live with that. Because I don't I don't think that a novel is like interesting or successful if it's like, and here's something you can do. And this is how you take action. So that was like never going to be something that I was going to write. That's just like not my strong suit. But at the same time, I was like, you know, it felt like painful to write this, some of this stuff and be like, okay. It's like, you want to annotate it and be like, here, Bunny's doing this. Like Bunny could actually like make <laughs> another choice here. And I worried that it would be too, because I do think there's like, there's a lot of contemporary fiction where there's sort of like um. This will sound like it's belittling. I don't mean it to be this way, but there's almost like a footnote that's like, by the way, everything is bad. Capitalism is bad. Everything sucks. And it suffuses the book in many ways. Like the book is sort of the books that I'm thinking of. Like it does matter for the book, but also just in terms of like how it's expressed, it does feel this like disclaimer like everything is bad. Like what can we do? It felt important to me that people would not read the book and be like, everything's bad. Like what are you going to do? I mean, I'm. You're always endlessly surprised by how what people will take from a text. I think definitely some people are kind of like, oh, I'm comforted by this because I feel like there's nothing I can do. And look, like this woman also feels like there's nothing she can do. But and then I want to be like, well, I made a huge mistake because like this woman is a different. Like you are. This is a fake person that I
0: made up. Like, <laughs> um,
2: but then I'm like, but I wrote, I invented and wrote this person. So clearly, like I'm wrestling with some of that in my subconscious as well. You know, so. The book is writing itself in some ways that you're not like totally aware of. I think that's another reason. So I felt like pretty determined that I was going to have like a lot of resources just at the back of the book, sort of works consulted. Because even if you, even if readers are like take issue with the way I presented it, or they're like, you know, this is like a work of complicity, totally fine. I'm like, okay, yes, like maybe my execution wasn't to someone's liking, but like these are the sources that inform my way of doing that, like, I learned a lot from them, I find them illuminating. And none of those, most of the work cited are people who are very much like, no, there are things that we can do, you know, there are things to, to change. But, but yeah, I mean, it's weird when you're writing fiction, it's like, ultimately, it is fiction. And it is, but I definitely whenever there's an article, like there was recently, I'm now not going to remember, but it might have been in like the drift, drift mag or the point. And it was about like, Contemporary fiction that's sort of not imagining like a new future, and some of the authors mentioned in it were very right. I mean, I think understandably, we're like, oh, sorry, I didn't like fix like our global economic system, like with my work of fiction that like you know ten people are going to read or whatever. I totally understood that, but I also was very intrigued by the premise. Like, yes, like what do we want from fiction, and what are policymakers were sharing, like ministry for the future, all over the place. Like this book tells us what we need to do, and. You know, so if it's going to be treated that way or some books by some people are going to be treated that way, it does sort of lead you to think like, oh, maybe there is some
1: responsibility that
2: definitely is thorny.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was something I was really struck by, actually, in thinking about the different forms of optimism, too, that the different characters in the novel display. On the one hand, you have, you know, Bunny and Francis, to a certain extent, thinking like, well, people will figure it out. (laughs) Somebody else (laughs) Um, we'll figure it out. But then the kind of alternative maybe optimism that comes from the idea that maybe if we do pay closer attention to some of these things, there are some possible solutions that we could come up with. I thought that the the novel did such a wonderful job of really kind of threading the needle of that kind of ambivalence and the question of hope versus
0: hopelessness
1: in the face of all of this, for sure. Can
0: I ask you, Lydia, how, how's your hope? versus pessimism going these days? Like, where are you at now, post-mobility being in the world?
2: I mean, I really think you have to live with like both at the same time. There's just so much evidence everywhere of just like unremitting cruelty and stupidity. And so if absolutely, I don't follow anybody who's just like, oh, I see all of this. This is so depressing. I mean, even, you know, I used to spend a lot of time on Twitter and like watching Elon Musk buy it and just like, just watching like these dumbest drama of <laughs> like imaginable, just like a spiteful, strange man, and realizing like how much power someone like that has, like that's very demoralizing. It's like, okay, to be demoralized. But then also thinking about like the sort of socialist politics that I have followed and sort of eavesdropped on, and the ones that have felt very motivating to me are the ones that are like, we have a lot of power. Like, look at all these people. Look at all these people who by and large, like agree on a lot of things. It's not really like popular to point out how much they agree on certain things or like how much, even if they don't agree on things, their basic needs are the same. And there has been like a lot of major kind of organizing power and like gains made. And I think that a sort of a positive political vision that is like not focused on like people fighting, but is like, look what we can get if we are together and you can still hate each other, but we'll all have this thing. And I think that can apply to climate change, too. I'm really inspired seeing young people talk about Green New Deal stuff. And that helps. I just don't think it's like, again, it's like the two things at the same time, like people are already dead because of climate change. And so there's no talking about like, oh, well, we like have to be positive. Like, no, it's appropriate to be like, this is a an ongoing sort of crime that has been has many hands on it and will continue to kill people. And that's horrendous. Like there's just sort of like no words to describe some of the things that we have seen, even like in the last like month. At the same time, I think people who are here and have agency and do have it in them to like make some changes are motivated more by we have time to change stuff and we have a lot of power and we can have a, it doesn't mean that you can't have nice things. Cause sometimes I think people are scared, like, well, I'm not going to, French people just said they want people to go on four flights in their lifetime. There was like a poll that came out. And so I think there are lots of people who are really good at focusing on what is possible. And so innately, I'm sort of like, oh, my God, everything sucks. I hate like like assholes. But then I don't know, like seeing also where I live in Portland have a lot of like neighbors and people in my neighborhood who just like do things that help a lot of people for no, like they just do it of their own accord and it really changes like the texture and like character of where we live for the better. And so I'm like, wow, people can do things. And I just try and focus more on that. But this book is about like people who don't do things. (laughs) uh, 'cause, Cause I, yeah, I still, I do have like, you know, I have like a lot of rage that's both sort of for myself, like the communities I've been part of, like I've, you know, went to like a lot of elite institutions. I'm angry, but I also, it's like, I can put that in the book, but then I have to like, do other things.
0: I like that. I like wrapping up uh, on a more positive note there. (laughs) We can change things. We have to think about it, but we
1: can still do things. Yes. Maybe to go back to the motif that you mentioned of the, you know, do you want to give birth in the hospital? (laughs) One thing that I thought, you know, of those we struck by, I mean, Golden State and Mobility are sensibly two very different novels, but they're also, I think, very much concerned with questions of motherhood, which I thought was quite interesting. I um, mean, you know, Daphne's very immediate and visceral experience of trying to keep a toddler and, you know, herself alive <laughs> in, the golden, in the Golden State segues into a different kind of existential maternal angst by the conclusion, I think, of Mobility, hopefully without giving way too many spoilers. So I was just curious to hear, you know, maybe a little bit about, you know, how and why motherhood is for you a helpful lens for examining some of the questions that you've been talking about here today. And obviously the novel is tackling as well.
2: I used to, you know, I, I got started writing like as a nonfiction writer and I wrote like book reviews and they sort of verged into like personal essay and basically like anything that I could write without having to like go out and do something. So it's like, right from your life or right from a book that you've read. And then I started writing The Golden State because I was kind of like, well, I have more that I want to sort of think about and struggle with, but it doesn't fit into like the rubric that I have of, you know, pitching like a 900 word personal essay or, and then now I'm sort of thinking like, especially, you know, I have two kids, they're getting older and I no longer have the same comfort writing about them as I did when they were babies. Because when you have a baby, you're like, this is my baby. Like this baby is not in charge. And I am. And (laughs) part of becoming a parent, I think, is really realizing like, oh, no, I don't have a baby. Like I have brought a human into the world. This is now a person. I live with this person. I have to like help them grow up. I may be totally unequ- unequipped, to do that. And like some very fundamental levels that I will like now learn about. And it's just sort of a new, beautiful tormenting process that is different from the beautiful tormenting process of having a baby or a toddler. But it, yeah, it's, it also becomes one that you like, that it is harder to talk about because now you have people like that. You're not going to just be like, you know, and I have, there's lots to say about, you know, many people like are talking about, their kids in a public forum and there's lots of ways to do it gracefully but like yeah really getting into the thorny stuff I think fiction is a great place to sort of think about some of those things I was so sort of in the like parenting beat and would always be approached for things like about parenting that when I started mobility I was kind of like no babies (laughs) (laughs) no no children no babies like no caretaking of any kind but then I realized like that's impossible that's not And there it became more less about like motherhood and more about daughterhood, because the relationship that Bunny has with her mother is very sort of central to why she does things and sort of how she thinks about life. I felt reticent and like danced around that a lot, too, as I was writing, because it's like I have a real mom. I don't want to put all our business like everywhere. And, you know, Mary Ellen, Bunny's mother is not my mom, but there's some things that are the same, like a, a divorce when your children are adults. And that is like a very sort of profound thing that happens in the book. And so, yeah, I was thinking about it more like, what is it like to be a daughter of a mother, to be an adult? How do you see your sort of role and responsibility? How does watching your mother like teach you what you should be like in adulthood? But then I was like, yeah, but she needs to, she like should also have a kid. Like, because just thinking you know, Bunny is sort of like becomes kind of a stand-in in in a lot of ways for sort of like white millennial, elder millennial, or like professional class women with sort of this certain set of like cultural reference points. You know, this is the kind of wedding she would go to. This is the kind of school, like there's a lot of stuff like that. And that story in my sort of experience does not not involve like a lot of wrestling about having children and a lot of pressure still to, especially in like, sort of like cis, like heteronormative settings, like to have kids. So I was like, Bunny's not going to like want all this stuff that all these other people have and also not want a baby. Like that's just not, it wasn't. And so then I knew, but yeah, I didn't, I mean, a lot of it, it was just kind of like, I didn't feel equipped to sort of really get into that again. So it's told in this very like glancing way, but it is still like, yeah, it's sort of central to, I still wonder Bunny's still kind of mysterious to me too, which I think is important about your characters. Like you have to know them a lot, but then you also like, you're just like, what are you doing? And I still wonder, I'm like, I wonder how she thinks about herself, like in that sort of future era and like as a parent. And I think it would have been really interesting to like explore that more, but then it became like another book. So that's just sort of like off in the haze.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That was another question I did have in thinking about, you know, the similarities, you know, you mentioned that they kind of start and stop with your shared background as like a child of foreign service parents, um, which is also, I think, the background of Daphne and in, in the Golden State too. And thinking about how completely different these characters all are and, and where they, they end up in their trajectories. But I'd love to hear a little bit more, I guess, about how you develop and write these characters, how you start maybe with a similar kind of shared starting point and then are able to take them into these very different trajectories and allow them to remain a mystery, as you say, (laughs) to yourself in the course of writing, too.
2: Well, it's funny. I think it... Yeah, because Daphne in the Golden State is, like, in some ways, so me. Like, same sensibility, like, way of thinking about, like, rampant anxiety brain. I just sort of, like, ramped it up and gave her sort of some different circumstances. But then Bunny is, I think like I have used the phrase of like sharing DNA and Bunny and Daphne and I share DNA. But it's like when I was writing Daphne, it's funny because some people are like, well, this character is so unlikable. Like that's the thing about her. And I'm like, that's hilarious to me because I like love Daphne and feel nothing but like (laughs) sympathy for her. You know, she's having a hard time. We just need to like be nice to her. And yes, of course she has like her foibles, but I I don't consider her to be like villainous in any way in that book. But then Bunny is like also me, but it's like dark Brandon like memes. Like this is like <laughs> like I share a lot of things with Bunny, but just like emphasize the different parts and then saw where those parts would lead. The same way I think finding this sort of core with Daphne of like ways that we see the world, ways that we handle the experience of caregiving and and handle of stressful experiences, you know, sort of in the larger sense and then letting her kind of run with those. So yeah, it's like finding some element of yourself and then just like giving it free rein, and adding in these sort of external factors that totally change the trajectory of the character.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. This was such a pleasure talking with you. It was a delight. Thank you so much for your wonderful questions
0: and your care with the book. Thank you all so much for joining us today. If you would like to join our membership program to receive books like Mobility in the mail and to join discussions with us like these, please visit elliereviewofbooks.org slash membership and become a member today. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Larb Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlad.